0: Hi, I'm Rev. Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. Let me tell you a little bit about today's podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the shadow and just how important that is to our spiritual journey. Have you ever wondered how it is that spiritual leaders and gurus, and sometimes religious leaders who claim high levels of consciousness, how do they get caught up in sexual and financial scandals? How do they sometimes misbehave with their followers? Or do you ever wonder how independent adults give up their own authority and give blind faith to another person? How does that happen? In this episode, we're going to be learning all about that and how it relates to the shadow. I encourage you to listen to the end and learn about the separate lines of development and how we each have shadow material stuck in each chakra and what we can do about it. So let me introduce you to my guest. Her name is Connie Zweig. She's a retired psychotherapist, a former executive editor, a former columnist, and she's been on the spiritual path practicing and teaching meditation for more than 50 years. She's written several books about the shadow. She's got an award-winning book on the inner work of age, which extends her work on the shadow into midlife and beyond, and she explores aging as a spiritual practice. Her most recent book is called Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search of Awakening. And that's what we're going to be centering our conversation on today. This is very important spiritual work. Welcome, Connie. Hi, Reverend Carol. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really nice to have you. And I want to make sure you could just call me Carol. That's cool. Um, and I'll call you Connie. And I'm very interested in knowing upfront what, what is your general message to people? What are you trying to convey through your books and, and the culmination of your work? And then we'll kind of get into a little bit of background story on you.
1: Wow, it is hard to simplify it, actually. It was a surprise to me that my career became about the shadow, which is Carl Jung's name for the unconscious. It's kind of had a mistaken identity as the dark side as something that's negative, but anything at all can be repressed into the unconscious. So our gifts, our talents, our feelings, all of that can be in the shadow. So the series of books that I've done, Meeting the Shadow, Romancing the Shadow, which focus more on relationships, The Inner Work of Image, which focuses on the unconscious process around aging, The Shadows of age. And the new book about spirituality and sort of the shadow issues around religion and spirituality just kind of follow that thread through my career. Why do we deny the shadow? How does it erupt and sabotage us? How, why do we hurt others or experience repeating fights or struggle with addiction or depression? All of this is related to the shadow. And at the same time, there's very little writing about it. There's very little insight about it. The field of psychology has moved away from exploring the unconscious. And so there's, a, for me, a sense of a need um, for people who want to look more deeply and really do some self-reflection. Um, know themselves more authentically and also have some tools to be able to work with these parts of
0: themselves that feel like they're out of control yeah thank you i do you think shadow work I mean I think it's essential to spiritual the spiritual journey I, I think it's one of the most important things we need to do, and there's been so much about the light I know like I'm a unity minister and and I've been in unity for decades. But I, I remember in the beginning, there was a lot of light. And it was all about affirming the good and, and, and all of that. And I remember having a conversation with my minister at the time about the shadow. Now, this is a long time ago. So I'm not really saying this is what the whole movement's about. But it was a long time ago. And I remember her saying something like, you know, we need to focus on the light. And I thought, hmm, I, I think there's, I think there's an error somewhere in that. Like we we can't just focus on the light. That That is way out of balance and it's ignoring so much of who we are. And I mean, do you feel that way that so much of the world is just really kind of focused on the light? And I mean, I shouldn't say so much of the world, but the spiritual journeys of many people They're focus on the light and ignoring the shadow. So in psychology, that's
1: what we call splitting. Because... We are right. we are saying, "God is here, and the devil is there. We don't want to look over there." So traditional organized religions teach us that, that they're separate, that it's not something to become aware of or to include, let alone embrace, and the spiritual communities in the more alternative world for the last um, probably six decades in some ways have repeated that, that split, and have really emphasized going for transcendence, for what we now call non-duality and awakening. We used to call it enlightenment. And really focusing on that and not looking at our psychological and emotional issues. Because the teaching often is, If you do these affirmations, if you do this meditation or this prayer, everything will be taken care of. And you won't have to be concerned with these other things. Certainly that was what I was taught when I was 19 and I started meditating. And it turns out, not true, right? Meditation doesn't solve our emotional problems. Prayer doesn't resolve our trauma. Right? Affirmations don't bring us um, relief from the past or forgiveness or awakening for that matter. And so, from my point of view, it's we don't want to give up those practices. We don't want to devalue the light, but we also don't want to devalue the darkness. We want to kind of expand to include the full spectrum of life. And I think. You know, in our call today, the headlines are just full of the shadow, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're just screaming about the darkness of humanity, the way people mistreat each other, hate each other, kill each other. I mean, it's really in our faces. So, to be able to understand the real beautiful value of spirituality and at the same time, the value of the shadow for me is a big developmental step. It's really important. Ken Wilber, the integral psychologist, talks about right? Talks about growing up, cleaning up, waking up and showing up. We can't grow up with spiritual practices only. They don't do that developmental work. And we can't clean up without shadow work. That's exactly what that is. And so if we want to really wake up
0: and show up for
1: our common humanity, we need to
0: include those other steps. Completely agree. I see a lot of people, quote, awakening to some sort of awareness of the world that they didn't see before, but then they move into blaming and hating that other group, (laughs) you know, like they're they're doing the same thing. Yeah. It's like it's a re- repeat over and over again. It, so it's like just a little semi awakening, but there's no there's no growing up in that awakening. You know, I'd really love to hear a little bit about how you, you came to the shadow work because I know you said you you learned through your meditation practice that it was not altogether sufficient. And can you tell us a little bit about how you came to realize that the shadow was so important for you?
1: Yes, I can. But let me just respond to what you said before that. Okay. So people, millions of people actually, are experiencing states of consciousness that may be unitive states. They may be heart chakra opening states. They may feel interconnectedness. Typically, the states pass. but Every once in a while, the state becomes a stage and somebody is able to stabilize it and have access to it. This doesn't mean, again, that their psychological issues are resolved or their moral, issue, moral development is complete. And that was one of the core issues that was puzzling me when I wrote this book. How can that be? If that's the case, if people who are claiming to have attained the farthest reaches of human evolution still act out their shadows. Power shadow, right, with coercion and shaming, physical abuse, sexual shadow with sexual assault that's going on in so many spiritual communities, financial abuse, coercion, taking people's money, living lives of luxury and claiming spiritual enlightenment. How can that be? And so that's one of the questions that drove me, really, to do this research. For me, when I was in my early 20s, I started TM for, not, for no holy reason, but because I wanted to date a guy who wouldn't go out with me unless I was meditating. <laughs> and that completely changed my life. Led me, I mean, I learned how to quiet my mind and my anger dissolved. And so I went off to become a TM teacher. And over the years, I found that there was a lot of hyperbole, over promising, a lot of oversimplification, and then a lot of spiritual rationalization. And what you were describing as sort of in group, you know, we are going to save the world. We have the jet plane to enlightenment. We have the best technique and everybody else is wasting their time. And then there were rumors of the the teacher uh, having sex when he was claiming to be celibate. And then there were new techniques where everybody was lying in order to get their new practice. So I left. And I kind of made this return to psychology. Eventually I went back to grad school to get my doctorate, but I went first into my own Jungian analysis and began to work with my dreams and discover my own shadow issues. And that was really um, challenging and humbling. Um. And kind of forced me to recognize what we're talking about, which is the limitations of spiritual practice. My meditation was not going to resolve my early family issues. Was not going to catch me up on the missed developmental steps that I had not taken because I was in this cloistered meditation community. So, you know... That journey, I think, of sort of spirituality first and ego development later, finding a career, building a financial foundation, getting married, that happened later for me. And in some ways, that was more common in the baby boom generation than in other generations before. It's not true of everybody. Some people went the more conventional route and did family and career first and then found spiritual practice or community. But there are many people like me who sort of did it backwards. And backwards because most of the religious and spiritual traditions teach that later life is about spiritual practice, right? Later life is about joining the monastery or learning contemplative prayer or whatever your denomination is. And so that was, for me, this kind of roundabout way to discovering depth psychology, Jung's contribution of the shadow, his understanding of how the unconscious forms, what material goes into it, and how we can become conscious of it. And so I was able to form that into a technique a method, which I describe in Romancing the Shadow. And that method, for me, is a spiritual practice. So you were saying, you know, is there a distinction between psychological and spiritual practice? So for me, as long as I was in clinical work for 30 years, I taught everyone how to meditate in order to be able to find their center and feel grounded To prepare to meet the shadow. Because meeting a part of yourself that's unacceptable or forbidden or scary can be challenging. And so that way, joining our spiritual practice to our psychological work begins to heal that split.
0: Yeah, I think this is such important work. It's probably the most important work on the planet right now. So we don't keep engaging in the same practices over and over and over again. It, it seems like we're in this do loop of, you know, war and, and, and hate and, you know, annihilating certain groups in our psyches and cutting ourselves off and all of that. And it, it, is, it is all about this shadow work. I did some depth therapy years and years ago. I was probably in my 40s or 50s. Sand Therapy with Jungian Analysts, and I love it. I just thought it was so interesting to really explore those aspects of the self. And I love that you teach your, um, your, your clients meditation to prepare the self for meeting the self. I can really see how those th- two things go together. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, how people can be highly developed but still have layers of self-deception. <laughs> I think that's that's one of the things that really intrigued me about what you wrote in your book, these kind of gurus that you find out or 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 ministers that there' have been traditional Christian ministers, the same thing where suddenly, wow, they're involved in this scandal, and I'm thinking recently, like John of God, I know lots of people who went to John of God and just really thought he was the best thing ever, and then now he's involved in this sexual scandal, and um there's uh, what Keith Raneri of nexium and Many, many others, the guru that you mentioned. And it it's so interesting because people, I think, then just get really fed up with what well, two things happen. They get fed up with all spirituality because they don't trust any of these leaders. But this idea that we have to have this teacher that we trust so much, it, I think that's where I'd like to go with this conversation. What is that? Why do people feel like they? They have to put so much on this spiritual leader versus really recognizing, like, what is the depth of their self. Okay. So there is a whole chapter
1: on all the sort of contemporary teachers who now have had difficult scandals, which is kind of epidemic around the world. And it's all denominations. And it's tragic and it's difficult to digest. You know, it was really, really difficult for me when I was doing that research and finding out, you know, what was going on. So it motivated me more to try to help people understand the question you're asking. How is it that independent adults give up their own authority and give blind faith To someone else. How does that happen? And, you know, this is a typical question asked by the cult literature, you know, with all kinds of cults. I'm not really writing about cults. I'm writing more about communities that really have value and beauty. They may have long traditions and lineages, but the teacher of the moment is caught, is possessed by his or her shadow. And what happens is for the student or the parishioner or the follower, what happens is we all have these unmet childhood needs. The need may be to feel seen, to be heard, to feel special, to belong. And if we're not aware of how those needs are driving us or motivating us, then we can get caught with one of these teachers and communities trying urgently to get that need met with all of our defenses, then denying and rationalizing what's right before our eyes. So in my interviews, I mean, I had people say to me, That can't be happening. If that were true, my whole life would have no meaning. You know, or he's enlightened. It's not possible.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Or, Or I believe her. She says she's not doing that, so I believe her. How is that? What's happening inside of that person to deny the abuse that's right before their eyes? You know, we learned a lot from the Me Too movement in 2017 about sexual assault and and manipulation in the secular arena. And the same principles hold true in the spiritual arena. Is it possible to give consent to someone who holds your spiritual well-being in his hands? Or is it possible to speak up, to speak your truth as a whistleblower where it's with someone who is saying, You'll have bad karma for lifetimes mm-hmm. if you don't give me sex, or your whole family will go to hell if you try to leave here. So, where is consent under those circumstances when the teacher's shadow is acting out like that? Where is fr- the freedom? And what happens is those unmet childhood needs or holding people in place, they still want it to be all good. They want to be, and if the teacher says, you're special, you're the only one I want to have sex with, because you're the chosen one, and it's going to awaken your kundalini, and it's going to bring you realization. How many people are going to say no to that when they're in that circumstance, needing, having that childhood need of being chosen Mm -hmm. and being special? So that's part of what's happening in the, with the believer or follower or parishioner. What's happening then with the teacher or clergy person in their psychology? So some of these people have narcissistic tendencies that means they have a self-centeredness in which they lose empathy for others and their own needs are so primary that they're kind of using people and i found teachers who were using men who were using women boys and girls just to satisfy their own needs there were literal differences a lot of teachers came from eastern cultures Some were monastic, some were inherently sexist, right? And that's all they knew was that sexist sort of misogyny in their culture. Some of them were then faced with coming from a monastery into the West where everybody's sexually liberated and full of self-expression and walking around half-dressed, right? And so what happens to those male teachers in that circumstance? A part of them that's in the shadow erupts. Sometimes it's sexuality. Sometimes it's power. Sometimes it's about money. Some of these teachers have never, ever had any money. We saw that with televangelists a lot,
2: Mm -hmm. how
1: they start with tithing and eventually, you know, they've got the entire estate, thousands of people under their control. And there's another level of it too, Carol, which is that in the term projection. So shadow projection usually means when we attribute to someone else, unknowingly, a part of ourselves that we don't want to see. And so we tend to think of it as something negative. Oh, he's so lazy. Or she's so seductive. But it cannot be something positive. He's so enlightened. She's so compassionate. And so we attribute to the teachers that part of ourselves. I'm I'm no longer the compassionate one because I'm giving it to that teacher. Right? I lose Mm -hmm. the connection with those traits that I'm giving away. So what happens to the teacher then who's carrying the projection of thousands, or millions in India, millions of people. That is a load. I mean, as a clinician, I carried the projection of one person at a time. In therapy, we call it transference. So if I were to imagine carrying that projection of the perfect mother, or, you know, the loving parent, or the loving mentor, or the... The saint, right? The mm-hmm. hugging saint or the um, the the one who doesn't have a shadow, basically. If I carry that for millions and millions of people, what happens to my humanity?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody sees me. No one sees me. No one sees my limitations, my flaws, my vulnerability. And most of these teachers have no peer support. So they're not, they don't have someone they can go to and say, gee, you know, I'm getting tired from all this projection or I want to tell them I'm struggling or I'm feeling depressed, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Right? So they become isolated and the whole dynamic is kind of frozen in place with the followers' needs and the teachers' needs, and the teachers need to be adored and devoted and obeyed, and the whole thing gets frozen in place, and that's how that happens.
0: Yeah, I can see this. It's like it's like two two people with their own unmet needs coming together and like creating this perfect storm. Yes. Yeah, and I see this in. I, I, I see it in Christianity. I mean, everyone has projected this golden, golden light onto the person of Jesus, and he is this absolutely the perfect light God, nothing flawless. And I am so low life. And <laughs> there's something that 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 dynamic, which is very kind of strange. In, in Unity, we're a little different. We really, we really encourage people to claim their own light and that the light that is in Jesus or the Christ is the light that is within us and our work is to claim that and step into that and that we would of course want to do that not ignoring the shadow because really the light shines only I think or really brightly when the the unconscious becomes conscious I guess that's a better word for it but I, I see this in religions everywhere where they're projecting everything onto this godlike figure and it completely ignores, I think, the spiritual identity of the individual. And what would it look like if we all claim that, if we all realized that ourselves, you know, br- withdrew those projections? That's our work.
1: Yeah, so the second half of the book is about spiritual shadow work. How do we reclaim the light for ourselves? How do we do that? And for some people, that means having to lead the teacher and the community. For some people, it doesn't mean that. So I'm not telling people what to do. Or for some people, it means stopping your practice. For other people, it doesn't. And then reclaiming your independent thinking. So, if you are afraid to doubt, if you are afraid to question authority, if you are afraid in some way to think for yourself, then there's a danger there that you can be seduced by the teacher's power. So, how do you reclaim that critical thinking? And feelings. You know, a lot of people develop a spiritual persona, right? Mm. So, I remember... For me, in my 20s, I wasn't supposed to get angry, I wasn't supposed to get sad, because meditation was solving my problems. And we wanted everybody to do it, and so we weren't going to show that we were having those feelings. So if you develop a, a narrowed range of feeling, how do you begin to reclaim some of the authentic feelings you gave up? Maybe it's sexual feeling. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's grief. And then your relationship to your body. How do you begin to reclaim your bodily knowing, your gut instinct? I've had people in my interviews say to me, My gut knew there was danger, but I ignored it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, how do you return to that intuitive bodily knowing? Right? And for some people who stay in, the, in their communities, how do you become a whistleblower and at the same time help to redesign the community? So I have examples of communities who have really recovered from these scandals and reimagined their systems because a lot of the times the institutional systems are patriarchal and they're supporting the abuse. How do you take that apart and reimagine the institutional systems so that masculine and feminine are different, so that, you know, there's no power over, so that um, there's different kind of communication and there's acknowledgement of the shadow. So all of that is part of spiritual shadow work
0: and the road to recovery. I really see that this is where we are right now. I suppose we're always at this juncture, but it seems like this is really what's up for humanity right now. This this individual with, withdrawal of giving up my authority to others, this claiming of my own, and I call it divine self, but maybe that's not the right word, authentic self, my my, my whole nature. And then imagining, I love that this is, you talked about imagining the community because I I feel like we also have a crisis in imagination. Like, we're so used to the way things are organized now with the power over and all of that. I don't know that we have, we are equipped to imagine really another world, another way to organize ourselves. You know, how do we get there?
1: Yeah, so I... It's developmental, right? So we can see pretty clearly now the different developmental stages in humanity. I mean, the war with Israel and Gaza is an archaic, ancient, you know, primitive fear and othering and hatred, right? Mm -hmm. It's been there for millennia. And it's all shadow projection. It's one group projecting the shadow onto the other group and back and forth. You know, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. So they lose the connection to the humanity of the other group. And then we see it with the Trump phenomenon. And, you know, I'm in this group and he's my leader and he can do no wrong. and, And so everybody else is bad. And we've got the answer. Or we're outside the Trump cult, right? And they're all bad, and we've got the answer. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Or we see this in, we see this in the religious communities I wrote about, where we're the ones being saved, we're the ones with a solution, we're all going to be enlightened, and everyone else is ignorant. It's all shadow projection and it's happening in every arena.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, so from my point of view, <clears throat> I talk about cultivating shadow awareness. So, how do you cultivate the awareness in yourself of your own shadow issues and your own projections? And that's really what my ber- work has been about all these years. How we do that in our relationships, how we do that in our Marriage, how we do that in our workplace, how we do that with our friends, um, in our politics, and now in our spiritual communities. How do we cultivate shadow awareness and stop projecting it onto all these other people? We are good and they're bad.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I think that um, part of what's included in that is moral development. I just met with. A group of Christian seminarians who never even thought about moral development. I mean they're all becoming Christian clergy. well, they have the Ten Commandments, but you know never thought about their own risk factors, their own blind spots. How could they be at risk of abusing a parishioner because they don't look at themselves mm-hmm, that way-. Mm-hmm. So to begin for all of us to really cultivate and carry that awareness, if I have an impulse to criticize my husband, I have a moment of choice. If I recognize that shadow character in myself, I have a moment when I can choose when to do it or not do it. But that requires a certain inner self-reflection, and moral development and empathy for the other person. And there are millions of people on the planet who don't have that empathy now. They're they're not living in that interconnection. So I don't, you know, I don't have the answer to the question of how we do this because my work has been kind of limited to individuals. And right now, I think we need moral leadership we need leadership that is conscious of the whole of the planet and the danger we're in and the interconnection of all of the crises that because all of our crises are interconnected now. And I don't see that kind of leadership coming forward. I mean, I think Biden has done some remarkable things, but I don't think he's holding that
0: for, for
1: that moral leadership. For
0: many people. No. no, I I feel that there's a lot of projection onto Trump that's just kind of missing from Biden, but, you know, it only because we can't see, you know, no one can see the guy that they like. No one can see the dark side of the guy that they like. It's just, it, that's just the way that we've been programmed with this whole left and right nonsense, I think. I, when I was a minister, I used to say, like from the pulpit when I was doing lessons, um that this identification that i am a good person if people identify i am a good person that that was it's a flag it's it's a little red flag if if you if if you identify like this is who i am i am a good person then you're probably not seeing all of the the unconscious parts about you that you may not call good that to me this is kind of moral development to look at what else is there and that that good would, would not be just like the the light parts of me, but good would include the all of me. And this idea that I am good and you are bad, it's, it's prevalent everywhere. You mentioned the Israeli conflict. What I think is also interesting is how people have to take a stand. People have to be, I stand with Israel, I stand with Palestine everybody feels like they have to identify with one side or the other and even if they're not in those communities then we can separate ourselves from our friends and family even more because i'm this and you're that and that's a funny propensity that we have that we we have to kind of pick our team and try to beat the other team and it's prevalent everywhere it's prevalent in sports it's prevalent in competition and school and all of that, it just seems like so much of our structure is really about uplifting whoever we identify with as the good guy and downplaying all of the others that are out there. And so to me, this really looks like we have to start. We, I, I mean, I, I guess a moral leader would be helpful but short of that, I wouldn't count on that happening. We have to make this a part of conversation with young children, I think. Like like we need to start making this a part of our education process with children earlier, I think. Or do you think it really is just that we just need to fix what happened to us when we were kids, when we we're grown-ups, and do our shadow work then and just hope enough people do the shadow work before we all destroy ourselves?
1: Well... These are really big questions, right? I wrote about the collective identity crisis that humanity Mm -hmm. is going through. I really see it that way. So when you speak about what we identify with, um, and I hear people say, you know, I'm a progressive woman, or I'm a queer Latina, or I'm a Black Lives Matter activist, or... I'm a white, working-class person. So for me, when I hear these kind of identity, these narrow identities, what's missing is our spiritual nature. Mm-hmm. What's missing is what you call the divine self, or our Christ nature, or our Buddha nature, or our true nature. Whatever name we call it, I, in the other book I called it rule to Soul. So if you identify with soul, not with gender or race or politics or body, appearance or role, what you do, because most people, when you go to a party, you'd say to them, what do you do, right? Our culture is organized around identity is role. So all of that is very small. It's very limiting. and It's part of what leads to all this conflict and polarization because we're not rooted in our spiritual identities and seeing the other person as a soul on on a journey or as a divine incarnation. So imagine how the world could be if we were all in that level of consciousness Mm -hmm. where we were rooted in our own true nature, and we could perceive other people that way. And I know people who live in that level of consciousness. I know many people who are awake to that level of development actually live with one. But on the other hand, that's not where humanity is at. So, you know, it's very tricky to say, what should we do? Because there are so many billions of people in so many different levels of development, and they and those levels need different steps, they have different needs, you know. And people who are fighting for survival needs are not worried about spiritual practice,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right?
1: Right, that's an example,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that what we can do is just what we can do. I, I I can't get the world to get on this spiritual bandwagon. I can't get everyone to do shadow work. But I do have complete control over myself. And for anybody who's listening who is aware of the shadow work as part of a spiritual practice, that our job is to do what we can do for ourselves and do the deep work. That's one thing that we can do. I believe that when I rise in consciousness or I claim my divine nature and I do that shadow work, that I am lifting up my own consciousness and that does lift up the collective consciousness. And it's it's the one thing I can do. And I can't do anything about anybody out there who's fighting each other and hating each other. I, I can't do a lot about that. But I really, really do like what you say about our identity crisis. I think it's really interesting that in the recent years, there is such a an emphasis on you know who are you as some sort of identity with some kind of group versus who are you as a child of God or a, a beloved soul or a, a star being <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. But what group are you associated with? Who do you identify with? And I really feel like that is it's almost like a contrived division to me. It's almost like there's a, there's a something out there that we're, I guess we're projecting something out there that's, that's really encouraging us to identify with something that is outside of us versus really doing the inner work. But we each have this muscle, like we've got to, to not be distracted by that and go, go back inside and claim who we are and stand in our own authority. I think that's the only thing we can do is our own work.
1: Well, for me, what you're describing is tribal consciousness,
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: which is connected to the second chakra, right? And the move from the second to the third chakra is a big leap. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And most of humanity hasn't taken that leap. Most of humanity is tribal, collective, not yet individuated out of the group. And I think part of what happens when people join spiritual communities, even if they're outside of the mainstream culture, I mean, it's easier to see with mainstream organized religions, but even if they're outside of it, they're tribal in their own little world. And a lot of these teachers are taking people away to islands, to isolated places where they're creating their own little tribal communities. And then they have their own language and their own viewpoints and their own, um, you know, private realities. And it's basically like a tribe. And it's happening. I mean, I, I get emails now from all over the world about, you know, people reaching out for help. And it's also happening in the psychedelic world. I mean, I've been getting messages from people, you know, I don't know what to do about my shaman. He's making us take ayahuasca every single weekend, even though we don't want to. He's seducing all the women, and everybody's trapped here and can't leave. So it's it's a dynamic that's repeating itself now, regardless of context or circumstance or culture. And it's sad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's scary and it's not, it doesn't get a lot of publicity. I mean, every once in a while, like Nexium got publicity because he went to prison, you know.
0: And there's a Netflix series about it.
1: Very few of these people are in the criminal justice system ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's his name? Bikram, the hot hot yoga teacher, had to leave the country because the law was chasing him. I think he went to Mexico. You know, someone in the Shambhala Chögyan Trungpa Rinpoche had to leave the country. I think he went to Nepal. So there's very little publicity about these things and very little legal consequence. Most states don't have penal consequences for clergy having sex with parishioners. I think there are a dozen states that do now. Hmm. So, you know, the systems haven't caught up with what's happening And the psychology hasn't caught up with it either. And, you know, I was saying some of these people are narcissistic. I really think some of them are sociopaths as well.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Some of them must be sociopathic or they could not be doing what they're doing. You know, the the kind of harm and trauma. I mean, people are experiencing PTSD in these communities over and over and over again. So I do want to mention to people who are interested in this, there is an organization called Association for Spiritual Integrity. We're um, exploring how to build moral codes for these communities, how to teach teachers their own moral development and so forth. And I'm also offering free online book study groups if you want to read meeting the shadow on the spiritual path and learn spiritual shadow work with other people you can send me an email conniezweig z w e i g at gmail.com put spiritual shadow work in the subject line so that i catch it and give me your time zone and I will connect you to other people. These groups are free. They're leaderless. They're online. And people are doing this all over the world, reading the book together, learning about spiritual shadow
0: and how to recover. That's great. I'll have all that in the show notes as well. So make sure I get those links. Yeah, I, I think that this has been really enlightening conversation. And I really enjoyed your book because... I, I it was always kind of a head scratcher for me. Like, how do these spiritual leaders? How do they violate humanity, human basic human morals so easily? Or how, why is that so prevalent? It's always been shocking to me. It's like, why does that person have a financial problem? Why did they bribe? Why did they have sex? I it doesn't. It didn't make any sense to me for a long time. But this whole idea of the shadow and that that you can, you can be at some spiritually advanced level but also be not fully mature in other ways i don't know if you could explain that a little bit so
1: there are separate lines of development you know right there's separate lines of development so emotional development cognitive development moral development spiritual development they they can be very separate in someone So I went to India and met this teacher there, and clearly he was spiritually very advanced. But emotionally, he was sexist. He didn't know how to relate. He was obnoxious. So this this doesn't mean that they're not having the spiritual experience they claim. I mean, some people may be lying and faking it, but some people can really be having spiritual states, advanced spiritual states, and be emotionally um, abusive because their own emotional development or their own moral development is delayed. There's shadow material stuck in every chakra. I think your listeners probably know about subtle physiology and the energy body and what the chakras are so there's there's shadow material in the in the brain mind body, mind, physical, but it's also in the subtle and so there's there's the remains of ignorance in every chakra, and there is a risk to act that out for people who haven't yet cleared it out so this helps us to understand that it isn't that naive childlike belief that if we meditate enough and realize the self, everything will be perfect, will be perfect. It's not the case. Mm -hmm. We don't become Einstein. We don't become Einstein when we wake up, right? It doesn't do that to our cognitive development, nor does it do it to our moral development. So it's complex. It's more complex than we thought. It's more um, nuanced. It's more full of ambiguity and Paradox. And it's very tricky if we oversimplify it or split. If we split the dark and the light, we're gonna miss what's really happening.
0: Mm. Yeah, these are very wise words. I, I can see that this can be very, very useful for clergy training to look at these different levels of development and look at the self in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Connie, I we're kind of running up to our hour. I wanna give you some time to say whatever your last words are if we didn't cover something that you wanted to cover. Well,
1: I'm calling for the expansion of religious and spiritual meaning to include the shadow, to include the, the gifts and the blessings that are buried in the unconscious in all of us, and also the unacceptable and forbidden and difficult traits and feelings and behaviors that are hidden in the shadow so that we can cultivate a a broader and deeper awareness of ourselves and of our teachers so that we can see the red flags more quickly, we can catch our own denial, We can speak up to others without being afraid and we can make choices about our communities and our practices with more freedom and pursue our own, what I call the holy longing, the longing for transcendence, for non-duality, the longing for self-realization, whatever terminology we use, because that is our guide. That's the whisper of the soul. But sometimes it lands on the wrong person. It lands on someone who's authoritarian or narcissistic, and then we get in trouble. And so I'm really wanting to expand this meaning of what is spiritual, what is awakening, what is a religious experience, and include more and more of the range of humanity within it. And I hope that people will pick up my invitation to read the book with others, shoot me an email, and I will connect you.
0: Thank you, Connie. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. This was a real kind of deep conversation, but really, really, really important. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom and being willing also to, to work with people and through these groups and through the, through the book the book groups. And I really also want to acknowledge the listeners. I really hope you take this conversation to heart and be inspired to do your own shadow work if you haven't engaged in that yet, as we all continue our journey to become whole people. So thank you, Connie. And thank you, listeners. And have a fabulous, 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 fabulous day. Yeah. Thank you for being on, really.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, and I now close the Spiritual Forum, but join me next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Form community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.